Good to see you tonight. We're going to get right back into 2 Thessalonians because that's where we've been living for the last few months on Wednesday nights. And uh, I'm loving it. 2 Thessalonians um, has dipped into a few different areas, a few different themes. One of the major themes is the return of Jesus, which is wonderful. That's exciting. That's something you need to be excited about, something we need to be thinking about. Um, I don't care if you've been burned in the past by somebody who claimed to know everything, including the day and time of the return of Christ. Because I know people that don't want to hear about it anymore because they've just, they threw too many rapture parties or something. (laughs) God's not looking for you to throw a rapture party. What he's looking for you to do is do what he left you here to do, but live with an expectation that he will return. And uh, when we lose that, that's a problem. You know, on every mile of road, there's two mile of ditch, right? Right? Some of you are like mentally doing the math. That's why I only used a mile. Uh, every mile of road has two miles of ditch. So just because you were at one time in this ditch doesn't mean you need to run out the other ditch. And just because you see somebody in that ditch, you don't need to run away from them to get to the other ditch. Just follow the truth. Keep our eyes. We said, look to the sun. That's what Jesus said when we're running the race. Keep your eyes. Fix your eyes on the author and the perfecter of your faith. So this is... Um, This is the truth that we need to cling on to. He is the author of our faith, and he is the perfecter, the finisher of our faith. So he's going to work this out. But all throughout the New Testament, he tells you that he's looking for a church that's excited about his return, that's anxiously awaiting it, that loves his appearing. This is all common in the New Testament. And, you know, I I have no trouble believing when I read this that that the people of the day that were receiving the letter and perhaps even the writer of the letter thought this was going to come in their lifetime because Jesus didn't tell them. I mean, the Holy Spirit, you know, breathed uh, a revelation into Paul about the return of Christ. Jesus told them about it. I mean, it's all throughout there. John saw visions of it. But, you know, the one thing he didn't tell them is exactly when it would happen. So they're living with the fact it could happen in my life. Of course, they, they're seeing things that seem like signs to them, and, and sure enough, they were in certain ways. And so, you know, I'm sure they expected it's going to come in my lifetime. And you know what? They weren't worse off for thinking that. That's a beautiful thing. I don't think it was bad for them to say, could happen in my lifetime. I think, I think that was perfectly good because... Really, the way you need to be living, the way Jesus left us to live, is, is the same way you'd be living if you knew he'd come back tomorrow, right? With an eagerness and anticipation. As my dad used to say, it, this, this may or may not be the last generation, but it's your last generation. Yes. This is your last shot. So live as if he's coming tomorrow. Build and plant as if it's going to be another hundred years, thousand years, right? Just keep doing what he left us here to do. So in 2 Thessalonians 3, we've seen some of that. Or 2 Thessalonians uh, and 1 Thessalonians, we've seen him talk about the return of the Lord because really Paul left the Thessalonians quite early in their conversion. Um, there were riots, mostly by the Jews in the synagogue who had rejected the gospel. And uh, so he was chased out of town. And so by the time he writes this letter, there have been some things that they've heard uh, they've heard rumors of, they've, they've got some teaching, but it wasn't complete. So he's correcting some things that need to be corrected. He's putting in order some things that need to be put in order while still encouraging them that, yeah, the Lord's returning. Don't worry, because one of the concerns was, well, what if, what if my family member, what if our church member dies before his return? Do they go up? And he goes, of course they do. And he goes through this step by step, just like a loving father would, goes through it and explains these things. And by the time we get to chapter 3, we're dealing with some big things. We're dealing with some practical things. We talked about this uh, last week, how he said, pray for us, that the word would spread rapidly and that we'd be saved from evil or perverse men. So he's saying, you know, we need your prayers. But then he says this uh, in verse 3, but the Lord is faithful. And he will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. Isn't that a great thought? I think that's a message we all need to hear is when we start to panic about, well, what's going to happen? Or, or, you know, what about these end times? What about all this? And what about that? The Lord is faithful. He will strengthen you and he'll protect you from the evil one. So then he goes on and he says this, we have confidence in the Lord concerning you 
that you are doing and will continue to do what we command. So we are confident, and this is the greatest thing. Uh, when we think about obedience, we think about that's what I'm doing, right? Obey the Lord, Mary. Get your life right, Mary. Why aren't you doing this, Mary? And, and it does require, I'm just picking on Mary because she's right here and she's always a willing participant. Well, we, we, we think, well, this is all me. And you have a part to play in obedience. Absolutely. God is not the, the, the commander of a robot army. He expects you to, to obey, and you have the, the choice to disobey. But here's the deal, is that uh, ultimately, the strength, the power, the grace to do what you've learned and what you've heard and what you've received lies in the hands of God. So it's him that's going to empower you to do it. Yes. Do you know what you're going to hear tonight? There's going to be action required. Faith comes when you hear the word, right? Amen. Faith will come. So faith comes and faith always produces action. So you've got to put action to your faith. But what we read earlier, in fact, it says in 1 Thessalonians that God will fulfill every desire for goodness and the work of faith with power. So your part is to act on that faith. His part is to provide the power to get it done. So here it says, our, it doesn't say we have confidence in you. Right? That would make sense. It would make sense for him to say, I have confidence. I'm trusting you to do what I told you to do. That's what you tell your kids when you're going away for the evening, right? I trust you. I'm putting responsibility here. I want you to know not to break my trust. But he doesn't say, I have confidence in you. He says, I have confidence in the Lord concerning you. That's an amazing thought. Remember, just before that, we read him saying, the Lord will keep you and protect you from the evil one. Jesus said that in John 17, he prayed to the Father and he said, you know, Lord, I, I said, Father, I'm not asking that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. We talked about this to the youth and, and it was so cool that God brought it out when he did because it wasn't something that I had planned to say, but we were talking about this fear that what, I mean, like when you're talking about a youth retreat, these kids get pumped up for Jesus. You know, they get excited. And we talked about, you know, like what happens what about this fear that what if, I, what if I fall back into the old way? What if, what if I can't do this? What if, I, what if I just can't follow through? And we brought out the scriptures that say that unto him who is able to keep you from stumbling. Yeah. And I remember, like, I think um, EJ gave her testimony not long after that that was her great fear. And she was asking that question of God right at camp. What if I mess up? What if I fall back? And it just set her free to hear the scriptures say, He's able to keep you from falling. Isn't that awesome? Your, your faith is required. Your obedience is required, but it's his power that gets it done. So it says here, we have confidence in the Lord concerning you that you are doing and will continue to do what we command. Now, listen, I'll just be honest with you. If somebody wrote that in 2017, there'd be a whole bunch of people that says, whoa, who do you think you are? For them to write a letter and say, do what we command. Whoa, buddy. I mean, if you inspire me enough, I might do something. But command, who are you? I, I, you know I could go to any church. Do you, do you know I can go on the internet and watch some YouTube? I mean, like, who are you to tell me what to do? Well, not anybody could come in and boss them around. And it's not really bossing them around. He's instructing them in the Lord. But not anybody could do this. You know, Paul says more than once, according to the grace given me, I say this to you. What's that grace? Well, he said it's a grace to be an apostle. Yeah. He's, there, he's an apostle to that church. Paul didn't go around telling everybody this, although God used this to, to talk to all of us. He's an apostle to that church, so there's a grace given to him. So they don't have to listen to him because he's smart. They don't have to listen to him because he's powerful. They don't have to listen to him because he's Paul and they love him. They're listening to him because God put them in a place in their lives to speak into their lives. And God puts people in your life that will speak to you, and you got to make the decision, okay, I'm going to trust that God's using that person. And it might get in the way of your ego. You might be smarter than that person. You know, I, I get to teach you tonight from the Word of God. Now, listen, I'm trying not to put my opinions too much into this. I'm trying to just teach you straight from the Word. But I'm, I'll be part of this. And listen, you might say, I'm smarter than that guy. And you might be right. You're probably right. But it's not about who's smarter in the room. It's about 
Well, let's just operate in the grace God gave us. And I believe God gave me a grace tonight to preach the word. Yes. If I didn't believe that, I shouldn't be preaching, right? I should just sit down. If I don't think there's grace to do it, then I'm just doing it in my strength. So it's okay for him to say, I'm commanding you, and you guys not to be shocked going, whoa, it's overstepping your bounds, man. Give me liberty or give me death, bro. I'm not under your law. No, he's, he's saying, okay, we're teaching you the word, right? So we have confidence in the Lord that you can do it. And he goes on and he says this, may the Lord direct your hearts. I love that. How many of you believe that God can direct your heart? Right? May the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and the steadfastness of Christ. I, I want this for my life more and more. I mean, I've, I've seen it to a degree, but I want it more. That God would direct my heart into his love and into steadfastness. What does steadfastness mean? You're still standing strong when you have every reason in the world to quit and you have every reason in the world to compromise. That steadfastness says, I'm not giving up. I'm still going. Then it says this, and this is really what we're getting to tonight. Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life and not according to the tradition which you've received from us. That word unruly literally is probably best translated undisciplined. And you're about to find out what that means. You might say, well, what does, what does he mean by undisciplined, unruly? Is, is it somebody who doesn't brush their teeth? Is it somebody who doesn't dress the right way? No, it's, it's not that. He's about to explain it. He says, for you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example because we did not act in an undisciplined manner among you. Nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with labor and hardship we kept working night and day so that we would not be a burden to any of you. Not because we did not have the right to do this, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you so that you would follow in our example. For even when we were with you, we used to give you this order, if anyone is not willing to work, he's not to eat either. For we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. Uh-oh. Does anybody hear the word busybody and think that's a good thing? Pretty self-explanatory that that's not good. What's cool about this is if, if you spoke Greek like Lacoganus is here, you'd see in the original language it's actually a play on words because he says you're doing no work, but you're acting like busybodies. He's playing on the same word there. So it's basically like saying you're not busy with anything except being busybodies. You're not taking care of your own business. You're just taking care of everybody else's business. Which is what happens when you're not doing what God called you to do. You just meddle in other people's lives. There's a verse that we've read from before that Peter writes. And Peter's writing to a persecuted church. And he says, guys, if you're being persecuted for doing what's right, it finds favor in God's eyes. It's a beautiful thought. Don't be ashamed because you're in jail. Don't be ashamed because people don't like you. If you're doing it for Jesus, if you are being persecuted for his sake, God gives favor to that. But then he says, don't let anyone suffer or be persecuted because you did bad stuff. So in other words, he's saying, like, don't be one of those people who says, I don't know why I'm being thrown in prison. It's probably because I'm a Christian. They hate Christians when you're the one that stole a car. <laughs> right? They're just persecuting Christians. They're after me. I know they were always, well, don't steal the car then. So it says, don't, don't let anyone suffer you as an evildoer, as a thief, an evildoer. And then he uses this word or phrase, troublesome meddler. That seems odd. Like, there's these obvious things like, yeah, don't steal stuff. Don't do evil because you're going to go to jail for that and you can't blame it on Jesus. Then he says, don't let anyone suffer as a troublesome meddler. Hang on. What does that mean? Well, if you look in the original Greek, one of the translations, in fact, the Strong's, and Strong's is not perfect, but I think it's a great translation. The Strong's Greek Dictionary says it this way, that that word, that phrase, troublesome meddler, is one word, and it means meddling in things alien to one's calling. It literally is the word away from and the word that we get the word bishop or overseer from. So things that God gave you to, look, to oversee, this is your department, you're away from it. You're meddling in other stuff. 
Do you know there's Christians today that are being persecuted? Not because they're preaching Jesus, because they're meddling in things they shouldn't be meddling in. And it doesn't mean somebody's not supposed to say it. It's just not, they're not supposed to say it. I think there's some people that CNN gets on every now and then that I go, that is not your calling. (laughs) You you need to just go back and preach Jesus. You do not need to be talking about this topic, right? Oh, I'm being persecuted because of my views on the tax code. That's not what God called you to do. Get back to what God called you to do. I hear it says, if you're not busy doing something, you end up being a busy body because you are created for work. Right? And the Bible actually says we were created in Christ Jesus for good works. What was the first thing? I mean, before Adam even had a wife, what did he have? He had a garden. And this wasn't a curse. This wasn't like there's a price to pay for all the good things I do for you. Work the garden. (laughs) It wasn't that God was incapable of making things grow without Adam's help. The garden was a pleasure. It was a benefit. Working the garden was a good thing. We were created for this. And what's cool about it is when we do this, we're imitators of God. Things are supposed to be better because we're taking care of them, right? We're not here to plunder the earth. We're here to replenish the earth, take dominion over it, right? So sometimes we say, well, what does take dominion mean? So what, who's boss? Yeah, that's probably part of it. But What we know is when God is in dominion, things are better. Things are better when he's Lord. Things should be better because we are caring for them. I've told you this before. You've heard me say it. We're in a condo right now, but when we sell the condo and get in a house, I want to plant a garden. And I guarantee you I'm going to be bad at it at first. (laughs) I'm growing herbs on the deck right now. Herbs, like actual herbs, guys, (laughs) don't. Don't report me. Um, like oregano and stuff, cilantro, things like that. Nothing, nothing weird. Um, and and I like it, but it's not that hard. Once I for, once I forgot to give somebody tell somebody to water our plants. We went away for a week and a half. They were fine when we got back. So it's really not testing anything. But someday I want to plant a garden because you know I, I learned so much about God from being a father. I learned a lot about God by being married. I think I'll learn some stuff about God by just gardening and just getting into the soil and learning how to plant and and harvest. It's not, I'm not a full-blown farmer, but let me give it a shot, you know? And uh, I think that's great because that's what we were created for. It's part of what, I mean, that's back to some original purpose stuff. Now, part of the curse is that the curse wasn't that you'd work. The curse was that the work would be toilsome and hard. The curse was not the work. It was how the work was done. So God didn't redeem you from work. It was just elements of how that work presented itself. It was thorns. It was the curse. And so we talked about this. I'm not going to rehash everything. And back in April, if you want to look back at that, we talked about this because this is the second time he's bringing it up. In the first letter, he brings it up. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, he talks about this at length. He addresses the fact that people aren't working. Now, why aren't people working? Well, one of the reasons they might be giving, because what's he talking about throughout these, both these books? What's the most common theme? What's the theme that keeps popping up in First and Second Thessalonians? Somebody give me one. We know it's, I mean, it's, a lot of it's the same stuff that you hear in all the letters, but there's one theme about the return of Christ, Right? And people are thinking, it's happening right away. So I can imagine there might be one or two people who say, Jesus is coming back, I don't need to work. He's coming back. But you guys know that the church in the first century was set up in such a way that if you didn't have food to eat, somebody took care and made sure you had food to eat. They shared. They had, held things in common. So what happens if you stop working? Somebody's taking care of you, right? You're taken from the group. That's why, it, you know, this, this phrase that he says, we were among you, and we said, if anyone doesn't work, don't let him eat. In, that's, that's a phrase, sort of, that's a modified phrase that was already found in the pagan world before the scripture was written. It was a saying amongst those people, and the saying went like this, if you don't work, you won't be able to eat. 
Somebody who doesn't work isn't able to eat. In other words, to be able to eat, you need to work. But he says it a little bit different. He says if they don't work, don't let them eat. Now, that doesn't mean that you go into their house and you take stuff from their fridge. It doesn't mean that you don't take the fork. What he's saying is you can't let this person keep robbing from the fund <laughs> that is supposed to feed orphans and widows and people who can't provide for themselves because this person doesn't feel like doing anything. That's not talking about somebody that's having trouble to find work, right? This is not talking about somebody who's incapable of work. This is talking about somebody who is fully able to be working, but they're just not. Um, I would like to say that we do as good a job now as they did then at taking care of people, but we don't. We should get better. Right? So really, this is even more a reality for them because somebody's paying for this undisciplined person. This is not a disabled person. This is not a widow. This is not an orphan. This is somebody who's fully capable to provide for themselves, and they don't. Now, if you read Ephesians 4, it talks about a thief. Ephesians 4 and 5 actually talk about your old life and your new life. And Ephesians says, let the one who steals, steal no longer. But rather, let him work with his hands so that he have something to share with the one who has need. I love that, right? Because he says, let the one who steals. Not somebody who stole once, but somebody who has made a lifestyle of stealing. A thief. He, he doesn't just say, tell him to stop stealing. He does say that, but then he says... Let them steal no more, but let them work with their hands, but not just work with their hands for their own needs, right? It says, let them work with their hands so that they'll have something to share with the one who has need. Do you realize that this is a great rehab plan? Hmm. <laughs> I was taking somebody who's addicted to stealing, a kleptomaniac. Somebody's made a career out of it, and it's just, you know, if you just tell somebody he stopped doing that, they'll try. But if you're not giving them something else to do, what, what's going to happen? They'll fall back into it. You don't just tell them, hey, stop stealing from other people. Work with your hands. Provide for yourself. But now you've given them something else. You say, share with someone who has need. I think giving is even more addictive than stealing. And what you've done is you've taken what was twisted and perverted, and you've made it straight again so that this is somebody who is is not just saying, well, I should take care of myself, but they're saying, I should take care of other people. This was the attitude of the church. This was the attitude of Christ. In fact, in the book of Romans, it says that we should no longer live to please ourselves, but to do good, do what's good. In fact, let me read it to you. Rather than just quoting, you need to see it because it's really cool. In the book of Romans, let me turn to the exact verse. I believe it's Romans 15. I'm just going off my memory here. It's not on my phone. Yeah, Romans 15.1. says this, Now we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves. Each of us is to please or really to do good for his neighbor, for his good, to his edification. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. So he says this, and it's not the only place that he says this. In another, another place he says that we who live now because of the resurrection, we, he died for us that we would no longer live for ourselves, but live for him. In another place it says, seek the good of all these other people. Not just to seek the good of yourself, but seek the good of your neighbor. Each one of us is to seek the good of our neighbor. Because we are members one of another. So really, God does not, I mean, it's good that you provide for yourself, but there is a better way. And the better way is that we don't just live to provide for us, but we live to take care of each other in that nature and attitude of Christ. And, and he draws that back. He says, just as Christ did. So Jesus didn't die for his sins. He died for ours. Right? He showed us it's more blessed to give than to receive. Right? I mean, he showed us what that looked like. And so you're teaching the thief. It's not, it's not about just making sure you're not stealing. It's not just about taking care of yourself. It's about taking care of each other and looking after someone who needs you. That's a powerful thought. In 1 Thessalonians 4, let me go back to just remind you what he said. And like I said, if you really want the in-depth version of this, go back and listen to the podcast back in April. But um, which was, I believe was called Created to Work. 
But he says this in verse 9, 1 Thessalonians 4, 9. Now as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. For indeed you did practice it toward all the brethren who are in Macedonia. You see, love is more than just fuzzy feelings for each other. Love is, it, yeah, it starts in the heart, but it also is, is action, isn't it? So it's, it's a verb, it's a noun. But it says here, but we urge you to excel still more and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet and peaceful life, quiet life, and attend to your own business and work with your own hands. So attend to your own business is just a really nice New American Standard way of saying, mind your business. Did you know that that was a biblical phrase? Mind your own business. <laughs> yeah, that starts with the Bible. Isn't that funny? If somebody said, as a Christian, what's your ambition? To preach the gospel. Lead people to Jesus. Well, it's one of our ambitions, apparently, to... You don't have a lot of people say, to lead a quiet life. We would say, oh, you're not spiritual at all. <laughs> to work with my own hands and mind my own business. Get out of here. You don't love Jesus. <laughs> but it's in the scripture. That's one of the ambitions that we should... He's not saying it's your only ambition, but make it an ambition of yours not to, not to put the burden on everybody else. Now look at this. He goes on and he says to work with your hands just as we commanded you so that you will behave properly toward outsiders and not be in any, in any need, which really means, it's not talking about you, you won't be poor. He's not saying so you won't be a needy person. In any need means you won't be dependent on others. He says work so that you're not going to be taken, taken from everybody else. Get to the point where you're not taken from everybody else, but you're not just providing for yourself, but you're providing for others. That's a good thing. Now, at the same time, we all realize that different people are at different stages in their life, and there's absolutely nothing wrong. Every one of us at some point needs somebody else, and we need each other, and there's nothing wrong with that. And no one ever should feel shame, guilt, or condemnation for needing something, right? right. Amen? When somebody walks in, they need some help, they need some food, they need somebody to help them and work with them. Hey, we're here. They don't have food to feed their family? Praise God. That's our job, to help them. But he's not talking about somebody who fell into some rough times. He's talking about people who are using the return of Christ as an excuse to just stop working. And let me tell you something. That's what the book of Proverbs calls, can anybody tell me the word? Sluggard. A sluggard. <laughs> yeah. I can tell that you're Bible nerds because no one uses that word anywhere else. <laughs> right? Like nobody's, nobody's like, you know, my son's just a sluggard. You know, I mean, at least non-Christians don't use that word. That is a Bible word sluggard. And, the, and, and Solomon in Proverbs really likes to use that word. He's talking to his son. Hey, don't be a sluggard. And he says, look at the ant. Now, I thought looking at the ant was being lazy, but he says, observe the ant. Watch what they, they don't stop working. They're very stupid creatures, but they do something right. They're, they're way more intelligent than we give them credit for, right? Um, I, I just want to read you from Proverbs 26 real quick. I don't want to get off too far off a tangent, which is I'm really at risk of doing. Um, Proverbs 26 has wonderful phrases like a dog returns to its vomit is a fool who repeats his folly. Proverbs 26 is wonderful. Like a thorn which falls into the hand of a drunkard, so is a proverb in the mouth of fools. I love this chapter. <laughs> Think of a thorn in the hand of a drunkard, okay. Um, but he goes on and he says this um, in verse 13. Proverbs 26, 13 says, The sluggard says, there's a lion in the road. A lion is in the open square. Now, Canadian sluggards don't say this because it, it would be an excuse that wouldn't work too well, right? There's a lion in the street. Uh, nobody believes you. But in this day and age, in this part of the world, that was plausible. But why are they saying it? They're not saying it because they think it's true. They're saying it because they want an excuse not to go outside. The reason I'm bringing this up is that you know the person that's saying, Jesus is coming back so they don't need to work, is somebody who would have found an excuse. If Jesus wasn't coming back, they'd find a different excuse, right? It's the same person who'd say, there's a line in the street, I can't go to work. 
That's the same person to be like, there's just too much snow. I don't think I can get out of my driveway. There's like two inches. Don't think I can do it. Jesus is coming back. <laughs> I, I played soccer with a kid. <laughs> and I was, I was in sixth grade. And we were playing right by um, Bishop Lloyd Junior High. And I pointed out to Bishop Lloyd and I said, hey, that's where I'm going next year. I said, where are you going? And he goes, ooh. I was like, what? <laughs> what ooh? He goes, you ever heard of the rapture? <laughs> and I was like, yeah. I said, you know, I'm a Christian, right? I got a pastor's kid. But, but he looked at me like, yeah, you're a Christian, but you're not my level of Christian. Because <laughs> you are talking about going to Bishop Lloyd, when obviously <laughs> we won't be around. <laughs> he, goes, he goes, have you ever heard of the rapture? I said, yeah. He goes, yeah, so you see, I'm not going to Bishop Lloyd. <laughs> so I just left it at that. I just thought... Better the thorn in the hand of a drunkard. <laughs> now, I'm not saying he was lazy. I mean, he's probably just reflecting what his parents are saying. But, you know, there's nothing wrong with believing that Jesus is coming soon. We should all believe it. But keep working. Keep doing what he told you to do. So this is what Paul is saying. And here's the deal. Paul said, we had a right to have you support us. But we gave up that right. Now, he said this in other places. He said it to the Corinthians. We had a right to take our wages from you. He said, because even the Lord Jesus, boy, you don't get any higher than that. Even the Lord Jesus said, the one who preaches the gospel should make his living from the gospel. But we didn't do it for you because you need to learn that it's good to work. To the Corinthians, he actually says, other churches took the burden of supporting us. Like he said, we were robbing from other churches just to show you that we weren't after your money. Why? Because there were super apostles coming in that said, if we preach a message, you better pay us. And Paul was saying, we had to show you that the gospel is not about getting something, it's about giving something. That's right. But he says, hey, if we're sowing spiritual things, shouldn't we reap material things? Now, once again, if somebody said that today, headlines, Twitter, it wouldn't go well for them. But this is the Bible. And we've all, you know, I mean, come on, this is, this is reality even today. I'll be honest with you right now. Like, I make my living from the church right now. But for the first five years of pastoring, I worked a full-time job, drove up to Loon Lake, pastored that church, preached here once a week. I know what it's like. I, maybe I didn't do it as long as Paul. But I know what it's like to support yourself for a while and, and say, you know, I'm doing this for the sake of the gospel. And you know what? It wasn't about the money. It's still not about the money. And if I stopped getting paid, I'd still keep doing this, right? But he said, I gave up my right. Why did he give up his right amongst the Thessalonians? He didn't do it amongst the Philippians. Because he talks to the Philippians. He said, you did good to support me. He doesn't do it amongst the Bereans. He doesn't do it amongst the... Um, Thessalonians? Well, this is the Thessalonians. I'm trying to remember who Romans. He doesn't do it amongst the Romans. But he does do it amongst the Corinthians and the Thessalonians. And he probably, I would guess, and this is just me guessing, I bet he did that quite a few times, at least at the early stages of preaching the gospel. So people wouldn't say, he's just after your money. For the sake of the gospel. With them, he said, you guys needed to learn that God still wants you to work. That it's good to work and not be a burden on everyone else. So he says this, we did this to show you something. Back to Proverbs 26 just for a minute. The sluggard says, um, there's a lion in the street. A lion is in the open square. He says, as the door turns on its hinges, so does the sluggard on his bed. I love this. It's like you're not really learning anything else about life, but he's just taking jabs at a sluggard. Sluggards are so lazy. How lazy are they? They're so lazy. Anyways, he goes on and he says, the sluggard buries his hand in the dish, but he's weary of bringing it to his mouth again. <laughs> Gee, this is a rough life. You know this guy's playing Xbox in 2017, right? <laughs> hey, not everybody who plays Xbox is a sluggard, but I'm just saying... This guy's probably like, Mom, bring me more Cheetos. Shouldn't you get a job? I'm busy, Mom. I'm up to level 30. He says, nothing wrong with Xbox, guys. Come on. He says, the sluggard is wiser in his own eyes than seven men who can give a discreet answer. Here's the problem. At the root of this, and, and I didn't read the verse before this, when he starts talking about the sluggard, but the verse before was a fool being wise in his own eyes. 
and he's brought it back to a sluggard is wiser in his own eyes. Now, that's interesting because we don't make that connection too often, do we, between being a sluggard and pride. But they're connected. Do you realize that the guy in the Thessalonian church knows other people are working? He knows other people are providing his needs, and he thinks it's still okay. Why? Because he's worked it out in his own head that he deserves it. Pride, of course, as we know, keeps you from the grace that God so freely wants to give you, the grace to, to, to provide, the grace to work, the grace to do what he's called you to do, because the Bible says he gives grace to the humble, but he opposes the proud. So the guy who says, you need to feed me, I'm doing important things, I'm waiting for Jesus, he's got a pride issue. Because at a heart of humility, in the heart of Christ-likeness, we're not looking to provide for me. I'm looking to provide for you. In the process, I'm fed, but we're taking care of one another. The sluggard is wiser in his own eyes than seven men who can give a discreet answer. This guy thinks he's smarter than seven guys who are smarter than him. And it's led to laziness. He goes and he says... Like one who takes a dog by the ears is he who passes by and meddles with strife not belonging to him. Hang on. Centuries later, being lazy is being tied to being a busybody. Same thought. The guy who is, it says like a guy who takes the dog by the ears is someone who meddles in his other... It was strife not belonging to him. I don't think it's a coincidence that verse 17 came after verse 16. Because in the New Testament, it says the same thing. You're so not busy with things you should be busy with that you have nothing to do but be busy with everybody else. So you're just a busybody. And, and I, I hate to sound really carnal, but get a job. Do something. Even if nobody pays you, just start working. Go mow a widow's lawn. Go help somebody who needs help. Do something. And, and the, the great thing about that is there's an exchange. We were created for it. So when you start to do something with your hands, even if you still need some help, right? There's, there's nothing wrong with still needing some help. We're here for each other. But when you're working and you're doing something with the hands that God gave you and the feet that God gave you and the heart that God gave you and the lungs and the breath that he gave you, when you're doing that, you have a sense of worth. Because you said this is what I'm created for. And every time we imitate God, we find out we, it's a revelation of we are, in fact, his kids. And we, we're just like him. So when you give, you get to participate in the character of God because God is a giver. When you bless, you're participating in the words of God because God blesses. When you, when you go out and you love someone, you're loving them with the love of God because God is love. And when I work... When I create with my hands, when I plant and I harvest, when I help someone who has need, what am I doing? I'm imitating my father as a good, as one of his kids. I'm imitating dad. And I find out I'm just like him. And that doesn't make sense. Because I wasn't like him until, I mean, I was like him to a degree. I was still made in his image. But Jesus changed everything. The cross redeemed us. What did the cross do? The cross redeemed and bought back what was stolen from us in the garden. And Jesus is restoring. Right. Praise God. Well, if he can restore fellowship with God, do you think he can restore our relationship with work? Why not? Do you think we're going to get to heaven, sit on clouds, eat cream cheese, and play harps? Because I don't think so. I think we're going to be working. And I think we're going to love it. Yeah. He created, he's going to create a new heaven and a new earth. We're doing it all over again, kids, but this time it's going to work. And it says this. I just called you kids, but most of you are older than me. I'm sorry. No disrespect. He meddles with strife that doesn't belong to him. Here it says, these people are so busy that they're being busy with everybody's business. I'm going to wrap it up with this. And this is important because this is going to be a little bit hard for some of us to swallow. And by some of us, I mean me too. He says in 2 Thessalonians 3, 
He says, we hear about some people that are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. Such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in quiet fashion and eat their own bread. Stop taking bread from the group. (laughs) Then he says, but as for you, brethren, do not grow weary of doing good. Do you know when you're expecting the return of Jesus, sometimes people get weary waiting, doing the right thing, because they're like, I thought he was going to come by now. He says, don't be weary. Remember, hope produces steadfastness in you. Then he says this, if anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that person and do not associate with him or literally don't get mixed up with them so that he will be put to shame. Show of hands, how many of you say that's a bit of a tough verse? It's for me. Maybe you are just so holy that that is easy for you. But, you know, with real people, that's not a super easy verse. And I almost wish it wasn't there. Except I know this, that God is love. And his instructions are instructions of love. And that though this may be a hard bit of love, it's still love. You're going to see it in a couple verses later. So it's not saying excommunicate this person because that's different. Watch what he says in in verse 15. Yet do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. So Jesus talked about people being put out of the group when they just refuse, refuse to follow Jesus, refuse to rebel. He says after a certain point, he says you got to treat him like a tax collector or a Gentile. Doesn't mean you hate him because you're not supposed to hate your enemies, right? but it means that you just treat him as an outsider. It doesn't say that about this guy. This guy you're still supposed to treat as a brother, so you don't kick him out of the church. You don't say, I don't love you anymore. What do you do? Maybe you don't just hang out with this person as much anymore. And then this is the weird verse. (laughs) Verse 14. Back to 14. He says, take special note of that person. Already that sounds a bit big brotherish, doesn't it? And do not associate with him so that he will be put to shame. Go ahead and feel awkward for a bit. So that he'll be put to shame. Oh, that's, that's weird, isn't it? I don't want any of you to be put to shame. What's he saying, though? So that he'll see that this isn't okay. Not that he be condemned. Condemned is a very different word but that he would be put to shame. In other words, he'd say, what, the Bible talks about people that are shameless. And it's not talking about shame in their own status as a child of God. It's talking about the fact that they're doing things that are worthy of shame and they don't feel shame for them. And they just keep doing it. It means that they don't see that there's anything wrong with this behavior. This person is supposed to say, this isn't okay, and then stop doing it with no shame of saying, I'm unashamed, I've stopped doing it. But when they're doing it, they shouldn't feel good about it. So he says, we need to demonstrate, if not just for this person, but for everybody, it's not okay to just live an undisciplined life when you should be working to help everybody else. You're just taking from everyone else, taking from them, letting them work for you, and you have that pride to say, well, I deserve it. They need to help me. And, and just doing nothing but sitting there, being busybodies, getting involved in everybody's business, but not taking care of your own. He says, this person, you probably shouldn't get mixed up with them. Take note of that person. Don't get mixed up with them. That they'll put to shame. But here's the thing. In verse 15, don't regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. So this tells us that the goal is not that this person would feel, you know, shunned or condemned, but that they'd be restored. Right? Admonish him as a brother. If you read the scripture, when it talks about admonishing someone, the point of admonishment is that the crooked things would be made straight again. The point of admonishment would be that the broken things are healed again, that there is shalom restored. So by admonishing this person, the goal is they be shown the error of that life and they come back. This isn't talking to strangers in Lloyd, Edmonton, Vancouver, anywhere else. These are people in our own family. Now, let me tell you, this is what I believe. If you can't love this person like a brother, don't even bother trying to admonish them because you're not doing it out of love and you'll cause more damage than good. Right? If what you're saying is not out of love, don't say it. 
But if you really care about them, then he's saying, you know, admonish them, help them. He says this in another place. He says, admonish the unruly. Encourage the faint-hearted. Admonish, admonish the ruly. Be it unruly. Be at peace with everyone. Unruly, once again, means somebody who is living a lazy, undisciplined life. Admonish them. Help them. Try to get them to a place where they see this is not what you were created for. And it's out of love because that person will never be satisfied living a life that's contrary to the love of God. The love of God does not say, what can I get from you? The love of God says, what can I give? The love of God doesn't say, you're here for me. The love of God says, I'll lay my life down for you. Right? When we walk in the love of God, everything works. Doesn't mean everything will be easy. Doesn't mean everything will, will be like you thought it would, but the love of God makes everything whole again. And love does not take. Love gives. Once again, let me make this very clear. If you are ever in need, do not be ashamed. Because this is what we're here for. And every one of us, maybe it wasn't financial, but it was something. Every one of us has been in need. And I think it's beautiful when the body of Christ meets each other's needs. Maybe you needed some help financially, but you know what? You had something someone else needed. Maybe you needed some help with your groceries, but they needed someone to encourage them. Maybe you needed some help paying rent, but they needed someone to shovel their driveway. See, it's about... It's not about saying, I'm the one who doesn't need anyone else because the Bible says, don't let one part of the body say, I don't need the other part. We should need each other. It's about saying, I'm not going to be so proud that I think everyone else is here for me. I'm going to work with my hands like God gave me to do. I'm going to provide for myself and I'm going to take care of the one who has need. You know what? And I've, we've, we've talked about this before. If it were a sin to borrow then the scripture wouldn't tell you to lend, right? Because if you were lending and it was a sin to borrow, you would be assisting in someone's sin. That would be bad. Now it says don't owe anything to anyone but to love them. But if it was a sin to need, somebody, need something and need help, it would be a sin to help them because you're assisting in their sin. You're helping enable them. It's not a sin. So I want us to be very clear and, and accurate in dividing the word here. Because like I said, for every mile of road, there's two miles of ditch. And I certainly would never want us to be the kind of people who get so judgmental, who say, well, you should be, you, you could have a better job. You could be doing this. No, that's not the point. The point is, let's never get to the place where we say, everyone exists for me. And I don't want to, I don't need a job because you know what? People are taking care of me. Government's taking care of me. No, get a job. Do something with your hands. Let's help each other. Let's bless each other. Let's be there for each other. Let's not think that everything is mine, but let's think that we're all part of one another and everything belongs to Christ and we belong to Christ and Christ to God. I'll just close with the end of this thought. He says this, Now may the Lord of peace himself continually grant you peace in every circumstance. The Lord be with you all. I remember one of my favorite stories in the book of Acts is when the church at Antioch has a prophet named Agabus come down. And Agabus tells them there's going to be a famine over the whole world, including the very church they were in, the very city they were in. And he says there's going to be a famine over the whole world. And the church in Antioch responded to that prophecy, not by hoarding, but taking up an offering and sending it to Judea. One of the reasons they took, sent it to Judea is because the Bible tells us in Hebrews that the people of Judea were hit first and hardest with persecution. At first. Now later, at the fringes of the empire, it got worse. But it says that they, their property was seized from them. And it's very likely that the famine was going to hit them real hard. A natural response to famine is to store, to save, to hoard. But a godly response to famine is to give. Isn't that beautiful? And when Paul talks about that promise that many churches made to support the church in Judea during that time, he says in 2 Corinthians 9, 8, he talks about the grace given to them to give. 
In chapter 9, he says, but God is able to provide seed to the sower and bread for food. I believe that, guys. God God is able to give us something to give and give us something to eat. And I want us to be the kind of people who seek not to please ourselves, but to please one another, to build each other up, to help one another. Let those who are strong bear the burdens of the weak. And listen, guys, I fully believe at one point in time, we've all been the weak one. So there's no shame in needing someone's help. Don't you ever let the enemy put shame on you. Don't you ever let these words I just preached today be twisted so that you think by needing help, you were taken from someone else. Because the church was set up with the idea in mind that at some point we're all going to need somebody else. What he is addressing is somebody who says, I don't care that everybody else has needs. I don't, I don't need to do anything. And that lazy, undisciplined life has nothing to do with the character of Christ. So do what God calls you to do. Do it with all your heart. If you've got a job that makes more than everybody or you have a job that just barely making it work, do it for the glory of God and trust him. And let's be part of one another. If you see someone in need, help them. If you don't have the, 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 the resources to help them as much as you could, recruit some help. We are here for one another. God is able to provide seed for the sower and bread for food. And that's what it says in the book of Acts, that when they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, again in Acts chapter 4, great grace was on them all. And it says the, one of the proofs of the great grace of God that was on them was it says great grace was on them all for no one among them considered anything was his own. None of them had any need. Isn't that amazing? Nobody had any need because they all said, nothing's just mine. We're all part of each other. That's an evidence of God's grace. Let it be working amongst us. Amen? Stand with me.